1: Hi, this is Marion Bartoli.
2: I'm Mats Wilander. This is Mary Carillo. I'm Stan Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is
0: Yannick Noah. Hi, this is Henrietta Bradshaw from Godalming, and you're listening to the Totally Brilliant Tennis Podcast.
1: Well, thank you and hello to Henrietta from lovely Godalming. By all accounts, a a lovely place to live. Um, I've not properly visited, but I once delivered a car there during my time working for a car rental company in my summers from uni. And the scenery looked lovely as I was driving through Godalming. Uh, So hello, Henrietta. Thank you for your support in last year's Kickstarter. Thank you for all of those of you... That have supported us in this year's Kickstarter and it's a lot of you because we have just in the last twenty four hours reached a hundred thousand pounds in funding for twenty twenty one. Yeah, I know. It's um it's pretty ludicrous really, and we are chuffed to bits.
3: I think we better give Matt a pay rise. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think so too. All further, all further proceeds shall go towards shall, shall go towards Matt and buying beers for Matt. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So thank you so much. Um, I, it, those words aren't enough, are they? I just keep saying them and they sound so insufficient every time I say them. But we are overwhelmed. I say that a lot as well. Has anybody got any new words for how we're feeling about the Kickstarter, Matt? Flush.
2: Uh, no, <laughs> sort of insert mind blown GIF or emoji. Yes, only, <laughs> in the absence only gifts of words. Do. Yes, yeah, really amazing. Yeah, just thank you. Really, that's mm. that's all we can say. Let's go with that.
1: Yeah, we'll just keep saying it. Um, you're listening to part two of Lost in Time Tennis. This is coming to you slightly later than planned because one of us were not re- revealing which one. Uh, of us uh flushed our phones down the loo
3: this morning yep
1: we did Yep, yep.
3: we all it was just one of those days where things all just I'll happened.
1: say all i'll say is that uh it's a little bit depressing how many people have correctly guessed <laughs> the identity of the phone loo flusher on twitter little bit depressing okay lost in time tennis we it's still manage- working by the way
3: it's still working <laughs> it's back up uh, and running there is a reason is why working.
1: one of us has a um waterproof phone
3: yeah yeah works a treat now. and
1: i and you two i'm sure as well would definitely recommend waterproof phones to yeah. to anybody who is slightly accident prone so lost in time tennis we covered five uh five lost in time players on monday people are enjoying lost in time tennis my well my family certainly are i don't know if that's representative reviews but my dad sent me a long list of submissions for part two um i I won't reel off all of them because i've i've very fittingly forgotten a lot of them but carol (laughs) could carol kuchera was on there david
3: blimey how's he made the, I <laughs> the grade know. i mean no for... the
1: only person in the world wanting an entire podcast about carol kuchera <laughs>
3: <laughs> i mean really look i tell you we've got I'm, I'm gonna go right right ahead and just tell you at least that Milish, miroslav Machir is on the list who really should be going ahead of carol kuchera who was known as the little cat because he's the same nationality and playing style and was coached by the big cat, Miroslav wasn't, Machir.
1: Uh, wasn't Carol Kuchera your sort of ATP comms era?
3: Oh, yeah. That, yeah, he was a he was a lovely player. Got uh, any
1: stories just to keep my dad happy?
3: Just a beautiful mover around the court. I can understand why he was compared to Machir, who we'll go on to talk about. The, and Kuchera got some Either got great wins or, more often than not, really, really pushed very, very good players or top players to the limit in big matches. You know, he was a, a great opponent. I remember one time with Kachiera being at Queen's where we were stood on the side of the court and he was playing Tim Heman.
1: I knew um, you'd have a story. Yeah, I'm, uh, he's playing,
3: I'm just going to put my mic down. David's off. <laughs> <laughs> he's playing Tim Hemman and because the the courtside bit I mean you are ground level so you're right next to to by the side of this player and I mean you couldn't hear his footsteps especially on grass you know there was no sound at all just tiptoeing around the court and and pushing Henman to the absolute limit and and it, but it, I think he had uh, Mr Whitaker he had just a little bit of a tendency to choke and I don't mean to be unkind with that because you know most players Have that and are battling that, aren't they? But I think that it probably held him back from maybe achieving what he could have done.
1: There you go, Dad. Consider that payment for all the DIY you've been doing for me recently. Oh,
3: and incidentally, five (laughs) all was the head to head between Kachera and Tim Heman. And the match to which I refer is 1999. Can you believe this? I've I've got it right. It was at Queen's, 1999, quarter final, and it was henman won it 6-1 6-7 7-6 i mean it was just an amazing match um and 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 henman went on to reach the final which was probably the best ever queens final i've seen because he played sampras and very nearly beat sampras and lost in the third set tie break there as well
2: how did you manage to bring up that head to head so quickly
3: (laughs) david you were talking the whole time Matt Roberts esque. I mean, the, the other day I managed to intercept a hacker <laughs> in our Instagram account whilst I was podcasting. So you know,
1: uh, the other players uh, David on my dad's list are now Bandian Flack slash Seguso. Neither oh. of which I've heard of. I don't know whether they're the same. You haven't person. heard
3: of Flack and Seguso? Are they a doubles partnership? Ken Flack and Robert Seguso. I mean, admittedly they are eighties. So I, I, you haven't went heard of, of Flack and
1: Seguso. Uh, david wheaton brackets perhaps Oh, david uh, wheaton was
3: good <laughs> david david wheaton played a match you know he used to wear uh, a stars and stripes headband like you're not needed
1: of, for this matt if you just want to go and
3: <laughs> get yourself a beer david wheaton used to wear a stars and stripes headband and he came through in the same era as jim courier andre agassi Michael Chang he was put there's a great photo of them all together and, and there were a couple of guys who clearly just didn't quite make it because they I, I never heard of them again but Wheaton was a proper servant volleyer. He reached the final of Queens one year as well. Um, had the most magnificent match against Agassi at Wimbledon in 1995, when Agassi was at his absolute peak in that year that he, he won about 30 or 40 matches in a row. Um, and I, I think it was about third round of Wimbledon, and he's just piling on the pressure, and Agassi comes up with the most astonishing running, forehand cross-court passing shot with Wheaton diving and falling flat on the ground in his desperation to get to this volley um, and i guess he just sort of fought him off he was he was great to watch
1: i'm going to carry on with the list because this is amazing <laughs> um sue barker's next on it and I, uh, I i agree with my dad there she is as a tennis player she is totally lost in time so yeah. few people know that that she's a, a Grand Slam champion.
3: Well, without wishing to just hype up our own back catalogue, we've got two appearances with Sue Barker on this show. One from just a couple of years ago at the ATP Finals that we had at the O2, and one particularly uh, memorable one for me was when we we'd just started the podcast and w- we got an interview with Sue. And half of, we we put it into two episodes, and, and one of them was just talking about her history as a player and the. Anxiety that she had felt when she was closing in on the Wimbledon title, or or a chance to get to the final. She was supposed to get to the Wimbledon final. Everybody was expecting it, and I think it was the year that Virginia Wade won it, and she lost, I think, to Betty Stove um, in in the semis. And she said, "I just I just couldn't play. I couldn't handle the nerves." and And she said to us in that interview that it has always stayed with her um quite I mean and and for those that aren't from the UK and know Sue Barker as a household name now she is the main tennis presenter on BBC TV for the last 20 years but she was a French Open champion and it's just really interesting to hear her memories and her sadness really at not being able to get over the line at Wimbledon.
2: Yeah it's quite interesting Sue Barker in terms of what we talked about in part one, how people's relevancy in in other people's mind can be dictated by whether they've stayed in the game and done media. And I think for a lot of people that, that does make their tennis achievements seem bigger. But I think for Sue Barker, almost the opposite's happened in that she's become such a big media name that she's, she's known more for her broadcasting and presenting Wimbledon and, and the summer of tennis on the BBC in the UK rather than actually... The tennis player that she was and yeah she's a she's a French Open champion isn't she and uh, huge huge tennis achievements which probably have been forgotten both with time and also what she's done after her playing career.
1: Last name on my dad's list uh, David after Carol Kucera is Michael Shtick brackets boring.
3: Oh he Oof. wasn't that's harsh <laughs> Mr Whitaker. that's is harsh. Is it
1: true though it oh. might be.
3: Be true, but how do you? It? Do you mean off the court? Do you mean as a player to watch, I mean, watch or? I, mean <sighs> how, no, I
1: mean, if if we if we were to if we were to do a Michael Schiick podcast, rightly or wrongly, I, I'm not I'm not sure that would rake in the the listeners.
3: Well, I disagree. <laughs> like, he was very much somebody I was thinking about including on this list. He was on the long list. Yeah, um, he was. He was. Uh, One of the most beautiful players to watch, I felt, in terms of just style. You watch his service motion, and you you can't believe a player can serve in a manner that's as languid and relaxed looking as he looks. Like he looks like the player that's rolling his arm over in the knock up, just just to loosen up. Not proper serves, just rolling his arm over, and then you realise the ball has gone off the strings at 130 miles an hour he was a, a, an incredible talent um single handed backhand great backhand he had bit of a they used, i mean I, I don't know the technicalities that well but he used to have a little bit of a wristy forehand which i think used to let him down a bit but just a proper serve and volley could just a natural tennis player um but he was spiky. I mean, you know, I, I I got to know him quite well at BBC Radio because he covered Wimbledon for a number of years and ended up getting on really well with him. But he's a spiky character. He fights his corner, and he ended up getting on into lots of awkward rows with officialdom. And um, uh, but but had some incredible wins. I mean, he beat Sampras a couple of times at his best. Um, be, just just a really. But I, and I I would say should have. Given his talent, I think probably should have achieved more. He won Wimbledon in 1991, lost to Agassi in the '94 US Open final. Um, Shtick beat Thomas Muster when Muster was on a Nadal-like run at the French Open in 1996 and ended up, I think, losing to Yevgeny Kafelnikov in the final.
1: Well, there you go, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> David Law on hand for you any time. Uh that you want to hear about nineties tennis players. Um Who were the ones at um, on the
3: start of your list? Robert seguso and Ken Flack, and who else was there?
1: Yeah, uh, David Nalbandian. Oh right, Nalbandian. David yeah. doesn't talk okay. about Nalbandian. I don't really want to talk about him. <laughs> no. Okay, so we'll save Seguso and Flack for another day. Or maybe you could just sort of call my dad.
3: Oh yeah. Maybe or, we'll just edit out the first ten minutes and I'll yeah. <laughs> I'll tell your dad directly
1: um sorry dad but I didn't pick any of those players my first pick for part two is Juan Carlos Ferrero, um the 2003 French Open champion and former world number one he was world number one for eight weeks he was toppled by Andy Roddick uh later on in 2003 the year that Andy Roddick won the US Open of course beating Juan Carlos Ferrero in that in that final straight sets, straight sets final for for Roddick. But, you know, that was two Grand Slam finals in, in one year for Juan Carlos Ferrero. He wasn't a flash in the pan. He had reached the French Open final the year before, and he was expected to win that one in 2002. Um, He lost out to Albert Costa in the final. And he's a, he's a really interesting case study is Juan Carlos Ferrero because You look at his results and his trajectory on paper and he seems like a bit of a flash-in-the-pan Grand Slam champion, you know, beat Martin Verkirk in his one-and-only winning Grand Slam final. Who was Martin Verkirk? You could look at that and think, oh, well, he got a bit lucky there to face somebody like that in the final. But he was the guy on clay. Very briefly, he was Nadal before Nadal came along. Um, and I'll go through some more of his achievements and his ing- injury struggles in, in a moment. But a, a blog I found from uh, Pete Bodo on ESPN from from 2012, around about the time that uh, that Juan Carlos Ferrero eventually retired, um, who's saying he's talking about. In fact, this, this in fact is the week after uh, Ferrero's retirement at the uh, Valencia tournament in Spain. And Rafael Nadal made a surprise visit to uh, to Valencia that week that year he I think he took a late wild card he wasn 't supposed to be there and Pete Bodo's talking about how kind of poetic that is that Nadal kind of muscled in to to Juan Carlos Ferrero's swan song um, and uh yeah, just a, a few passages from from that piece Ferrero lost to, to Nicholas Almagro in, in the first round of that tournament. And Almagro after, after the victory thanked Ferrero for pushing me to become a professional. I think he was, he was quite instrumental, um, in the development of, of Almagro, um, but Pete Bodo describes Juan Carlos Ferrero as a human tipping point, ushering in the era of Spanish domination on the tour and in Davis Cup competition. He paid dearly for that role too, which is where Nadal enters the conversation. When Ferrero, lean, energetic, and so swift that he was affectionately dubbed El Mosquito. I won't. I won't translate that for you. Uh, won Monte Carlo and Roland Garros in 2003. He was widely viewed as a player who could potentially dominate the game. He was better than and different from Moya. Less powerful, perhaps, but more nimble and blessed with a lot more natural drive and gusto. Although Ferrero was best on clay, his aggressive ground game translated well to hard courts. And of course, he he was runner up at the U.S. Open in in 2003. Um, Ferrero became number one in August of '03, but he lasted just eight weeks thanks to Roddick's triumph over him at the US Open he came down with chicken pox early in 2004 I mean what are the blooming chances you're a you're a reigning Grand Slam champion and just been world number one and you're a grown-up and you get bloody chicken pox I mean that must feel like a a crew jo- cruel joke um Uh, So he came back down with chickenpox early in 2004. Then after a month-long layoff, he injured his ribs and right racket wrist in a fall during practice. Inadequately prepared for the defence of his French Open title, Ferrero lost in straight sets in the second round to to number 77 in the world, Igor Andreev. And at the same time, Rafael Nadal was on the cusp of a breakout delayed by injury problems of his own. Now, of course, that 2004 French Open, Ferrero was a bit of an unknown quantity because of injury but was kind of the the favorite to win it. it ended up being won by Gaston Gaudio and that turned out to be his last chance because after that there was Nadal and there has only been Nadal you know barring a, a couple of of, <laughs> of absolutely great players that have muscled their way in it has it has been Nadal and he's closed the door on everybody else and an illustration of that is that in December, 2000 Ferrero, who was, who was 20 years old at the time, not a Grand Slam champion or Grand Slam finalist. He clinched the Davis cup for Spain with a win over Leighton Hewitt. Um, And then in 2004, the year after he was a Grand Slam champion at this stage, he's been world number one. Okay. He, he has had an injury blighted year and, and failed to defend his French open title, but He's still a player of great prowess on clay and Spain are in the Davis Cup final. It's being played on clay in Spain and Juan Carlos Ferrero is dropped for an 18-year-old Rafael Nadal and he only gets picked to play doubles, which he loses. And that is the most kind of poetic illustration of the career of, of Juan Carlos Ferrero, I think.
2: Isn't 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 there some symbolism in that two thousand final as well? Because isn't isn't Nadal a flag bearer of the Spanish yes. flag? He's in the photo, isn't yes. he? A very young he's Rafael Nadal. He's in the Nadal. photo.
3: Is he the, the
1: ghost, a, a ghost of the, the Ferrero feast? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's. I mean, he's a he's a fantastic debate point for because, you know, I I talk a lot about how you know, success is all about timing in sport, and you know there was that. Window post Sampras pre Federer, where nobody dominated and there were opportunities. I think there's going to be another window quite like that in in a few years, maybe even sooner than that. You had Leighton Hewitt coming along and being utterly dominant, dominant Juan Carlos Ferrero um, and Andy Roddick, and then along comes Nadal and Federer, and the door is slammed in everybody's face would Juan Carlos Ferrero still have faded in the same way had he not had that onslaught of injuries he finished 2003 ranked number 3 in the world and he would never again finish inside even the world's top 15 now did his game just go completely out of fashion particularly on clay due to the way that Rafael Nadal changed the game Or was he just lucky that what was required to win Grand Slam titles and be world number one dipped Mm. for that period in time?
3: I I would feel, because I I lived through all of his career. I remember him coming on the tour when I was still at the ATP. So I remember the... He was uh, a
1: New Balls Please, wasn't he? Yes.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, The New Balls Please was a, a marketing campaign from the ATP in which they lined up all of the young up and coming players of the day, it was the next gen of the day. And on that photo was Marit Safin, Gustavo Cirton, Leighton Hewitt, and a very, very young Roger Federer. Always remember Marit Safin saying, What's Roger Federer doing on this picture? He's done nothing. He hasn't won anything. <laughs> and, you know, he says I've won a I've w i have won i have won the US Open in two thousand. Gust Gugger's won a, a grand Slam. what's he doing on the photo? And um You'd got Ferrero, who was very, very much on that as part of that group and regarded as the movement, part of the movement, as my colleague said <laughs> when he lost the 2002 French Open final to Albert Costa. Not good for the movement, he said. <laughs> um, and for but Ferrero, I, I think you, you you bang on when you say at the time on clay he was the man. He was not only the best player of the time, but he was regarded as the one who was going to just take over on clay. That you would have expected. Okay, before Nadal took it to ridiculous extremes, winning twelve French Opens, I think the view would certainly have thirteen. It wouldn't have seemed out thirteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, uh, it wouldn't have seen outlandish to have said that Ferreira will win three or oh, four gosh, no. you know that that felt very doable at the time given his game his game felt as to me at least a step ahead of Correcha and Moyer because he married power from the baseline that quick arm power with foot speed um, and, and an absolute relentlessness so when you talk about what why he Died away, but but st- The thing is, he still was a player. It's not like he disappeared completely and retired or anything. He carried on for another seven or eight years, didn't he? But he just wasn't a factor really at, at that level. So what happened? I mean, I I suspect it most likely was the injuries. I do think I don't think he would have been beating Nadal week in week out. But I think he could have given him a match, really, do at you? his best. I really do at his best. Um, I don't look. I think he would still have been losing the matches, but you know when you put him up against Hewitt, I'm looking at their head to head. I tended to feel that Ferrero had the greater power of the two. Um, I mean, it was six four to Hewitt the head to head overall. But I mean, Ferrero got a win against Roger Federer at the 2000 U.S. Open, and there's only about a year and a half between them. Ferrero's about a year and a half older, but he beat him seven five seven six. 1-6, 7-6, One six seven six, uh, Federer in that US Open in two thousand, and that, I mean that was those were in the days when we, we were. I was des- desperate for Federer to show that he could actually become a relevant player. Um, and he would have only been about nineteen, but yeah, the the the, the drift away of Juan Carlos Ferreira was a surprise to me. I have to say,
2: it's always struck me that the end of two thousand and three, and you would have both remembered this much better than me. People were starting to get quite excited about that group of players that were forming in the men's game: Hewitt, Roddick, Federer, Ferrero, and the others. You know, Correa. There was a group of them, but then nobody saw what was going to happen. Federer would, would win eleven of the next sixteen Grand Slams, and he just he just accelerated ahead of everyone else and kind of left everyone behind. And Ferrero got caught up in that group of players who just got left behind and. I always remember playing a Xbox tennis game and Ferrero was on it and he and he had as his big weapon huge forehand. And I was playing this game in, I don't know, two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, something like that. And it didn't add up. I was like, Well Ferrero, he's not got a huge forehand compared to Federer, compared to Gonzalez. He's 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 got an okay forehand. But it, it seemed that the game kind of moved on in those three or four years based largely on what Federer was doing and then Nadal obviously on clay because it's not even as though Ferrero was getting to play Nadal in the semis of the French Open or the quarters of the French Open so we could find out what his game was like against him. I think he did beat him once in Rome in about 2008 when Nadal was perhaps a bit knackered but it did seem that the top of the game accelerated ahead of him and also injuries caught up with him. So he didn't really get a, a chance to
1: demonstrate whether his tools could, could go up against Nadal and Federer at their best. Pete Bodo in his uh, in his piece kind. Of, I mean, it's mostly very complimentary about Ferrero, but he also he said when Nadal won the 2005 French Open, 12 months later, Ferrero was still just 25 years old, but he'd fallen to number 33 in the world, partly because of that earlier illness and injury. The scuttlebutt, though, love that word, was that Ferrero, a handsome young bachelor with a penchant for exotic cars, also was overindulging in the good life and the perks of his position. Can you? Can you confirm that, David?
3: I, that is a surprise to me. He—he mm. um, he, look. I mean, Pete covered the sport as as well as anybody, so uh, I certainly wouldn't doubt his reporting. It, it's just that to me, Ferrero always used to seem as though he had a great attitude. I, d- mm. I do think there was a chance that he could have burnt himself out. Um, he just seemed a bit like you know when I look at players that suffered from glandular fever, mononucleosis, like Mario Ančić and um, and Robin Söderling. You know there, there was the feeling almost as though when Ferrera came back and after the the O three period when he was at the top of the game, he just didn't feel like he had quite as much zip about mm. him for the rest of his career. He
1: he was he was never really talked about as a factor again. It felt like after two thousand and four, and I know to an extent Nadal winning the French as soon as he did in in two thousand and five was a surprise. but after that two thousand and three season, after he failed in his title defence in o four and fell to to Igor Andreev, that big shock at the time, I don't remember Ferrero really ever being in the conversation that much after that, which is extraordinary extraordinary given 12 months earlier he was the guy and expected okay maybe not to dominate in the Dahl terms but to dominate on clay and to challenge on hard courts Mm. and he just kind of disappeared until today when he was resurrected (laughs) by the tennis podcast he had to take second place to Carol Cochera, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) and he's working with Carlos Alcaraz
1: now Yes. Oh, I love that. At the Rafael Nadal Academy.
3: Well, they feel. I believe uh, that the story no? of the two of them feels. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, isn't hasn't it? he got Are his it? own
2: academy well,
1: Yes, right. which confuses me. But I do know that Alcaraz uh, is training at the Nadal Academy at the moment. Certainly, social feel, media would suggest. So they
3: feel quite similar to me, Alcaraz and um, mm. Ferrero, in terms of t- trajectory. That it is, uh, and it will be interesting to see. W- some players you see in football, Wayne Rooney, I think, was never more dangerous than when he was seventeen. Michael mm. Owen, the same, you know. And sometimes they get to a certain age, and injuries take it out of them, and all they're, it There are prodigies, aren't there? And, um, and and I would say Ferrero probably was one of those. Really awful to peak at seventeen. Isn't that really sad? I mean.
1: I was the Just m- the concept of that is really mm. sad.
3: Okay, well, I'll, t- I'll take some heart from that because I'm the utter opposite.
1: <laughs> David is waiting to peak.
3: <laughs> I-, I was so far from my peak at 17. I don't even know what my peak is, <laughs> but I mean, I know it yeah, wasn't Yeah, because it's until yet, to be,
1: yet to be discovered, David. Keep reaching.
3: Oh, oh all right. Then. Apparently
1: we reach our sort of athletic peak at 19.
3: Right. Well, yeah, I've never had one of those.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right.
1: Who would like to go next?
3: Matt's going next.
1: Go for it, Matt. Okay.
2: I've got Hannah Mandlakova. As my, as my next choice. And I suppose the case is similar to the case I made for Aranxious Anxious Vicario in that she competed in an era that's been defined by other players and her incredible achievements have been therefore a little bit swallowed up, I suppose. And of course, she was competing in the era of Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova. Um, but I think even when you think of that era, there might be other players that come to mind ahead of Mentlakova, probably Pam Shriver, Tracy Austin, Gabriella Sabatini might might all be more household names. Hello, Pam. Hello, Pam. <laughs> um, and what, what really struck me about this was when we covered the 1986 Fed Cup final. We did a tennis relived and that was... Martina Navratilova going back to Czechoslovakia but competing for the USA. And that whole tie, very understandably, was framed as Navratilova's tie. It was her finals. She was the story. And yet Manlikova was the number one for the home nation. And I just think that was a perfect symbolic moment of how no matter how good she was, she couldn't compete with Navratilova and Chris Ever in terms of in terms of attention, really, and I think I think because of that, her achievements are a little bit forgotten in tennis. Um, before this year, I honestly don't think I would have been able to tell you that Manlikova won four Grand Slam singles titles. I, I knew she was kind of the third player of that era, and that she competed and did manage to beat Evert and Navratilova quite a lot of times, more than other players. But she won four titles herself, the first age 17 at the 1980 Australian Open. She also won Roland Garros. She also won US Open in 1985 when she beat Ever and Navratilova back to back in the semifinals and final. And then she won the Australian Open again in 1987. So she won three of the four slams. She reached the Wimbledon final twice, meaning she was just a match away from the career grand slam. And she had this success on all surfaces. Um, I went on the Hall of Fame website and they really frame her as a forgotten champion in, in that era of Evert and Navratilova. But they had this line that she's one of just six women to have won a Grand Slam on all three surfaces. And when you think of the other players, that's Serena, Everett, Navratilova, Graf and Sharapova. And she's keeping that sort of company based on her achievements alone. Um, Bud Collins called her the streak beater because she ended Chris Evert's 72 match winning streak on clay at the French Open one year. She ended two of Navratilova's match win streaks in the 50s. And she ended, ended Steffi Graf's 23 match streak at a French Open one year. So... Yeah, I just think in terms of achievement, she's underrated. And also just going back and watching the video of her, she's she was a wonderful player to watch, kind of grace personified. And maybe she was seen as a bit more erratic than Navratilova, but she had similar skills on the tennis court. She was a serve volleyer, incredible backhand, could kind of do anything with it. Maybe didn't have the consistency, the discipline, the... Determination, perhaps, of a of a Chris Ever or a Martina. But when she peaked, she was a real handful for them. And so, yeah, I just think she she deserves to be talked about more than she is. While recognizing that obviously she can't quite compete with Ever and Navratilova, but that doesn't that doesn't make her not a fantastic player in her own right.
1: I um I interviewed her in the in the summer for for Tennis Relived about about Jana Novotna, an extraordinary interview. She was a real pleasure to speak to. But even though the interview wasn't about her, I obviously did a bit of research about her beforehand. And I was so ashamed to discover that I hadn't known that she was a Grand Slam champion. I thought she might have won an Australian or something before the Australian was was quite what it's considered to be now a four-time Grand Slam champion winning on all three surfaces, I I didn't know. And then I subsequently felt further guilt that I was doing an interview with her not about her. She didn't mind at all. She, abs- she was such a wonderful, humble character. She loved talking about Jana Novotna, of course. Um, and we talked a little bit about her, her rivalry with Chris and Martina Novotlova, but... Um, there was a touch of the Lindsay Davenport's about her, you know, when I got to the end of Lindsay Davenport's interview and she said, oh, I I, I never spent so long. T- I can't remember the last time I spent so long talking about myself. I can imagine Hannah Mandlakova would have been kind of the same. And perhaps that's because she she has been defined by, by being not the one, which sounds awful to say, but um, she certainly didn't seem to have a chip on her shoulder about that at all. She seemed comfortable with that kind of... With that kind of role but yeah it would be great to interview her one day and talk about her wouldn't it um
3: yeah hmm. you, talking about her uh, and referencing some of those results those records I can kind of re- remember how I felt when she was at her very best because it was just when I was starting to watch tennis and be aware of tennis and I'd only been about Eight or nine years old at the time, but I can remember her. That she felt like the only player in my childhood that could possibly upset Everton Navratilova. That she was the only Mm. one. All all of the others that you mentioned. I mean, certainly from a Wimbledon perspective, there were really, really good players, and we covered one of them the other day in in Wendy Turnbull. But she was a player who's winning two or three matches, if if that, against. Everton, Navratilova. I've just looked up. Pam Shriver got three wins against both of them. But, you know, it's really, really so difficult to, to do anything against those two. Joe Jury used to tell me what it was like trying to play against them. And yet, Mandelikova has got eight wins against Everton and nine wins against Navratilova. Now, she, she lost more than she won. She... You know, sort of three or four to one ratio, but she still at some really massive tournaments, grand slams, she managed to get wins against them. And until Graf came along, I felt in that era she was the only one, and, and I think that the stats do back that up. Mm. And I was
2: reading that she maybe gained a little bit of a, of a reputation for being quite blunt and yeah, and maybe almost ungracious, but. That was because she said things like, I think I can beat Martina. At my best, I think I can beat her. And if she hadn't said that, she'd have been framed as a pushover, someone who didn't have the confidence to go up against Martina. She had to have that confidence.
3: Well, she said those sort of things in the UK around Wimbledon and they really got picked up by the British tabloids and put into headlines because they're great lines, you know. And at a time when... Really, nothing happened in the women's tournament until Everett played Navratilova in the final. She was kind of a breath of fresh air, really.
1: Mm. Really interesting. Really interesting, yeah. So we'll put her on the interview list as somebody to speak to about her actual achievements and not about somebody else. Although I could have talked to her about Jana Votner all day long. She was. She had some wonderful recollections. Um, and, and yeah a treat to speak to
2: and there is that wonderful thing that the only things Manlikova didn't win she won sort of through Jana Novotna in terms oh. of Wimbledon and I think the tour finals were the two big big events missing from her own career Well, while she was coaching Novotna Jana won those titles so that was all kind of perfect
1: oh that's really lovely mm. oh follow that David
3: well I can't <laughs> Uh, Whenever I think back to our interviews over the summer, I think your one with Hannah is the one that touches me probably more than any of the others. Because, I mean, obviously the the, the story is so tragic as well as being uplifting in so many ways the Novotna story that really does bring a lump to my th- throat thinking about the way Mandlikova spoke about Novotna and and both as a person and, and what her success meant to her so no I can't do much to follow that story with all due respect to Miroslav Machir, but I'm at least going to try to um, bring him to, properly to your attention because I think he, he is the almost the definition of, of a player that is lost in time and that we are doing this series for because I think when you just look at records, he really doesn't stand out. He didn't win a Grand Slam title in his career and he did win Olympic gold and there were a number of players that had their moment at the Olympics and we covered many of them uh, in our Relived series during the summer. But, I mean, you think of players like Elena Dementieva and Nicolas Massu. He wasn't like them. He was a contender. OK, Dementieva had some moments, but Machir frightened the living daylights out of some of the best players in the world ever. I'm um, talking about Mats Valander. He had a winning record against Mats Valander. I think 7-4 was his record against him. And when you hear Valander talk about Machir, he does so partly... In reverence to him, and partly out of fear, as uh, you can tell, that the, that he gave him the collie wobbles as a, as an opponent, he didn't know what to do with him, and his view very much was if if Machir is on his game, we all know there's nothing we can do. And he spoke not about just himself, but about the the locker room as a whole. This is a guy that that when he was playing and when he was playing well, the rest of the players went out to watch. They went and watched his matches. And what was it that set him apart? I mean, I think as a game wise, I mean, it's it's a little bit too long ago for me to to re- remember it in in a detail that I could kind of relate to now. But it seemed as though he was the most balanced player of that generation. I I, I struggle to think of players that that seemed as well balanced. Again, I use the expression to describe Cachira as not being able to hear his footsteps when he's moving around a grass court. Now, Machia was like that, and probably more so. He was a better player. He was a better player than Kuchera. Um And he played at Wimbledon in 1988. He, he beat Valanda in the year that Valanda won three Grand Slam titles. And he knocked him out in the quarterfinals convincingly. Um, just carved him up. Um, he then got to the semi finals and he played Edberg. Uh, Edberg, at that point, had not won a grand sum title, and Machia went two sets to love up. And I think the, the view is that he really should have won. From, I mean, you know, from two sets to love up, you usually should have won, shouldn't you? But the, he was playing that well that for him not to win does raise question marks about him. And that seems to be. From the reading I've done and the people that I've heard from, his biggest problem... I mean, bear in mind Machir retired at the age of 26 because of a back injury, so maybe he would have had many more years left in him in which he could have got over the, the line if he'd have not had that those injuries, but he got himself into positions because of his incredible toolkit, his his weapons. He, he had so much to, to hurt people with, um but his nerve, it would appear, would let him down. Um and and I mean it's quite I think I, I say people went used to go out and watch him play, and I think one of the reasons that people also liked him is because they didn't really know too much about him. He was quiet, you know, he was he, he didn't make a big song and dance about things. He he just sort of brooded around the place um with his big thick beard. He was six foot three Big guy, but moved incredibly quietly, and nobody really knew too much about him. It it seemed to me. And um, there's a there's a a, he was he had a humour to him as well, a sort of quiet deadpan humour. There's a there's a great line. Somebody asked him um, why he gets along with John McEnroe, um, given that they're temperamental opposites, and he said, "Well, we don't meet very often." (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, this was in, uh, uh, a big sports illustrated piece called big cat on the prowl in April of 1987. Um, and there's this great paragraph. It says he makes such pronouncements from behind a scruffy beard that gives him the, the, uh, gives him the image of a beat poet in interviews. He often half follies questions with playful answers. Um, as well as the Machina line, uh, he, he said, This about himself. He's an avid fisherman, but when asked what kind of fish he most enjoyed catching, his answer was quick. Lendl.
0: Oh,
2: wow.
3: Now, I should say, his record against Lendl ain't very good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Didn't
2: Lendl beat him in his two Grand Slam finals? Yeah,
3: and comfortably as well. I mean, I think I find... I'd, I'd. I don't, I don't think I would quite like to go and watch them back because I think they were in really one-sided, but it seems as though Machia in those biggest moments didn't really turn up. Um, and, and that's the difference. Lendl was half the player in some regards, skill set-wise. Yes, he had a big forehand, but I mean, you know, he was a fairly mechanical player. Machia wasn't like that at all, and yet when, when one of them learns how to win on the biggest stage mm. and bear in mind Lendl had a lot of issues with that early on in his career lost a load of grand slam finals but he learned how to win machia didn't Uh has done quite a bit of coaching since and um yeah and and by the way just as a, a final thing when we talk about players that go out to watch others when I think of mature I also think of someone like Radvanska a little a player's player there's a there's a kind of mystique about them there's a they don't their results don't quite deserve the way they they get spoken about but everybody knows everybody within the game feels like they know something about this person and they put them on a pedestal hmm.
2: it's quite i don't know what the word is ironic i suppose cruel perhaps that whenever i've heard macshear described just like you have there david he's he's described as this incredible mover And someone who would expend kind of little energy and yet his career was curtailed by injury at 26. That doesn't quite add up. You know, he seems to be like the sort of anti-Nadal, if you like. He's not sort of running himself into the ground every match because he's smooth. And yet at 26, he can't move because of his back
3: yeah it's a it's a i mean really it's incredible that nadal has managed to his body has coped um by the way just as a final one valanda in classic, to, just to give an idea of how how much uh, Machia was living rent-free inside Valanda's head, Valanda once said that he's going to win 25 grand slams. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's like, like um, Sitsipass and Felix orger Aliasim last year. Didn't he say that he's like the best player I've ever seen? Because <laughs> he's beaten him twice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Um Yeah, I remember when I was first on the Champions Tour or in the early days, I remember doing an interview with Sergi Bugera at uh, the Royal Albert Hall there. And uh, I wasn't very experienced, but Sergi was was an easy person for you to send me to interview David because he was so lovely um, and not at all intimidating. And I can't remember what I was supposed to be interviewing him about. um, But one of the early questions was about who who his inspirations were, who his favorite tennis players were. And he just instantly said, Miroslav Machir. And he said it with this thick Spanish accent. And I didn't know who he was talking about. And I obviously didn't want to confess to not knowing who he was talking about. So I did I did a big nod. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he talked about him. I think he delivered a monologue about Miroslav Machir for about 15 minutes <laughs> with this twinkle in more than a twinkle this starry eyed look in his eye it was like he went to another plane he he loved Mirislav love and Cheer so much and i got to the end of the interview i didn't even know what to google to <laughs> to find out who he was talking about because i couldn't couldn't ask him to repeat the name and i i <laughs> couldn't make any sense <laughs> over this thick Spanish intoned you know I I vaguely knew who Love Mature was I knew he'd been a Grand Slam finalist but he wasn't front of mind Um, and it, it you know it hit the cutting room floor I think that interview because I'm not sure we could find a place on the um Champions Tennis website for Sergi Bruggera talking about Miroslav Machir,
3: But 12 but I, years later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I will always remember that look in, look in his eye. It was just wind him up and let him go. I love that.
2: I love players talking about other players.
1: Mm. Didn't he come up recently, Miroslav
2: Machir? Didn't Serena compare Sloane yes. Stephens to Miroslav Machir at the US yes. Open?
1: It That was... Yes. Hmm. What <laughs>
2: For, in terms of smooth movement, I think was the comparison. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I like, like it. A, like a
1: Rolls Royce. Yes. Yeah. That's how um, Simon describes Sloane Stevens. Maybe we could apply that to Miroslav Machir as well. I think if Miroslav Machir walked into my living room right now, I'm not sure I could confidently say that's Miroslav Machir. Do, do you, Matt? If he walked into your if he if he
2: still looks like he did at the nineteen eighty eight Seoul no. Olympics,
3: then he yes, he looks
1: like he does now. No, however that might be. No, no, he's just not seen, is he?
3: It, we, I, I didn't really give enough credit, did I, for that Olympic gold? Uh, and that is the one that he will remember, of course. And I think, yeah, that it's. I'm glad that he has that. Really, am because that I think if he had, had have not won that. Given his mm. ability, it would have felt like a real underachievement.
1: My uh, my final submission for uh, Lost in Time tennis bears some similarities, I suppose, to Miroslav Machir, and it's Dinara Safina who retired at at twenty five due to a crippling back injury, having been world number one and reached three Grand Slam finals. I think I think tennis did a real disservice to. Safina. She reached number one and had her greatest achievements at a time when there was a really unpleasant narrative around the WTA about this carousel of world number ones that had no right to be there and were were imposters at the top of the game. Um, you had Yelena Yankovic, you had Caroline Wozniacki, who, okay, many years later ended up becoming a Grand Slam champion, but she, she bore a lot of brunt to that. And Dinara Safina just couldn't cope with all of that. I think she perhaps wasn't the personality type to cope perfectly with being number one anyway, that having a target on your back. And then to deal with, constantly having to answer questions and explain to people and justify why you're world number one, she couldn't cope with that. And I'm sure lots of us couldn't cope with that. And why should she have had to? The questions there, whether you think they were legitimate or not, were for the WTA and their ranking system. Those questions were not for Dinara Safina to have to answer. Um, and to Miney Carial, during lockdown this year, did uh, did a big interview with uh with Safina um who's still only 34 and she played her last professional match in 2011 she didn't officially retire till 2014 but 2011 she played her last match and she's still a lot younger than Serena Williams um and the headline of the piece is being world number 1 is not fun it's the opposite um and uh, when she beat when she beat Anna Kournikova in 2003. Um, that was considered a big result because all the talk was about Anna Kournikova at, at the time. And um, I suppose it was a little bit after peak Kournikova, but certainly nobody was talking about 16-year-old Denara Safin. It's not like Marit Safin was at world number one and everyone was talking about his sister that was coming through. Like, do you remember when Novak Djokovic was first big and everyone said, oh, he's got a younger brother that's even better? Do you remember that? Yes. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, Richard Krejcik and Michaela Krejcik. Nobody was saying that about Denaris Safina. It was some people knew he had a sister that played some tennis. Nobody was saying, oh, they're going to be brother and sister world number ones. So she comes along and she beats Anna Kornikova. And she's asked after the match what she wants from her career. And she replied, the sport life is so short. I just want to enjoy it and not get injured. And she ended up not really enjoying it and getting injured. And that makes me really sad. I remember speaking to to Marit Safin a few years ago at, I think, the French Open. He was playing a Legends event and I was in one of those horrendous lineups, the sort of (laughs) cattle-type lineups of journalists sort of grabbing former tennis players, using all of my Champions Tour connections to try and get tennis players Attention, shamelessly sort of hating myself and feeling like I need a wash afterwards, for for many reasons, usually quite sweaty events. And uh, I did a an unbroadcastable interview with Marek Safin, where his answer to his first question. Was uh, I don't watch much tennis, and everything <laughs> from there <laughs> was pretty much a moot point. Um, <laughs> but he did say, I, I just can't remember how we came around to it by this point. I was thinking, well, this isn't going to make it to where anyway, so we'll just have a chat. Um, and he talked about Dinarin, and um, he said, Oh, she's she can't move, she can't walk, her back is that bad, I believe. I believe she's had some some treatments now, and she's sort of able to live a a normalish life. But for a time there, I think post retirement, she was in in crippling pain, um, and that's awful. You know, she had she had a great career. She won twelve titles. She won an Olympic silver, and she reached world number one and played three Grand Slam finals. And she. She had the ability to to, as as Tomine puts it, bully top players. You know, really bully them, but a little bit like we were talking about with Mary Pierce on Monday, she could just blast them off the court. And okay, it was quite hit or miss. She relied on on purple patches, but you know, she could take the racket out of great great players' hands. And she went through a period of being utterly dominant on clay, and she. She probably ought to have won a Roland Garros. Of course, she reached the final, but but never won it. Um, but she used to get cripplingly nervous before the before the finals. You know, she didn't enjoy the pressure of being at the top, um, and she didn't enjoy the stress. And I could make a really lame, lame sort of. Segue with the fact that it ended up being stress fractures in her back that caused her to retire. It would be so lame, I can't even be bothered to to finesse that out. Um, But she said, I couldn't handle my emotions and all these things. This is Tamani as well. And for me, that's why it was tough. Um, I always had a dream to be famous, to be number one and all that. But then suddenly I felt so much pressure being there. I didn't expect that I would have this pressure. I thought it was going to be fun, you know you become famous you want number 1 and everybody is happy it's actually the opposite everyone wants to beat you and uh, on the subject of being constantly the the butt of the joke about being a a false world number 1 she said of course you hear every day the same questions in every interview when are you going to win your first grand slam and i'm like you think i don't want to win a grand slam And then I started to struggle with this because it's something that was really annoying for me and it was very painful because it's something that I really wanted to win. Um, And then the rest of the article talks about how by 2010 she described her back pain as like somebody stabbed a knife in your back Um, and she was sort of constantly in a cycle of, of rehabbing just to try and be able to get back on the court again um and she talks about how making the decision that she couldn't do it anymore was this huge relief she said it was so deep in my mind because few I just couldn't go back again to feel this pain I had enough of this pain and I think another thing was that finally I could step away from all the pressure that I had and okay some of that is it's internal as I say I think it's, it's quite possibly possible that she wasn't that personality type that's suited to being world number one. We've talked about it with Angelique Kerber, haven't we? She has a year on and a year off, or she used to. She'd she'd get to the top, she'd win the Grand Slams, and then sort of recoil from being there. Like, oh no 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 no, I've 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 touched the flame. I think there might be an element to that with Dinara Safina, but I also think that tennis did her a real disservice, um, and she she bore the brunt of something that she shouldn't have had to and that kind of fed into insecurities that were already there and that makes me that makes me really sad
3: yeah yeah I, I i share that and i i'm partly responsible like the rest of us in the media that covered her at that time because it is a it was a talking point there were a number of players around that time Yelena Yankovich was another Caroline Wozniacki was one for many many years Players that got to world number one and didn't win a Grand Slam title, and when I looked back, I could only think of Marcela Rios, who had done the same on the men's side, and it was a real problem for women's tennis in terms of its credibility at the time. Um, some of which, it's understandable. I think I think golf has, from the outside, has the same credibility issue. Many players that don't win majors who become world number one now. Uh, golf journalists just tell me I'm just not understanding the sport well enough and um, and how different it is in order to to appreciate that and I think on at that time whilst I I still feel look the ultimate accolades are the Grand Slams the ultimate achievements are the titles are the Grand Slams and you don't really want a world number one who hasn't it's all a nice neat narrative if the winner of a Grand Slam is also the world number one. That just works t- for you to explain it to people. But I do feel the way we reported it, and I'd include myself in it, was was harsh. I, I, f- I feel like we could have been more gentle about that, really, and, and less just less brutal about it, really, and a little more human, a little try to understand, you know, the story she tells and the insecurity she had, I feel like that could have been given a little more room to, to work itself out Um r- because it's not, it's not that, there's nothing wrong with reporting the, look, the facts are the facts, but there is a way of doing it, I think, that is, I think we were sneering. I think we were, we were, setting her up for it really and making it worse as a result and because i know that when i came to Grand Slam finals i i commentated on her australian open final and there was this feeling of inevitability going into it but i think we were adding to the inevitability by sort of mm. just not really giving it a blank slate to start from um and she was coming out and it was so uncomfortable when she walked out and she just couldn't play tennis she couldn't play and that's uh, I mean look the 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 best champions are the ones that can come out and I've described Lendl didn't I uh, in the last stages of his career just produce when you have to produce some can some can't but I do just on a human level I do really feel for her in that regard Mm. that
2: point about her insecurities being sort of added to by by all the exterior narratives and people at the time i read some really well i mean i think at the time i would have been shocked by them but now they come across as as, as really bad actually and real underlying misogyny and these were from her coach this was zelko cryan who was coaching her at the time in the 2009 us open so she would played her grandstand finals by then and she was a she was having a double fault Problem. She had 26 double faults in her first two matches and then lost to 72-ranked Petra Kvitova, which kind of, at the time, that would have been a kind of a bad loss for her, I suppose. And anyway, the the quote was, this is the biggest difference between men's and women's tennis, the mental part. Women transform everything into a kind of panicking and the guys are much better at dealing with these things. And if that was Safina's coach and kind of a close oh my God. confident saying those things to her it's kind of it's kind of no wonder that she wasn't able to overcome any understandable nerves she was feeling in Grand Slam finals um, and I don't know I think reading about Safina's career I, I hadn't appreciated I don't think how steady her rise was and how how her trajectory was just always upward. Every year she was making these steps. She won her first title in 2002. She finished inside the top 50 in 2004 for the first time. She won the Fed Cup in 2005. She reached the first quarterfinal of a slam in 2006. You know, the graph was perfectly, perfectly going upwards. And so it was really a natural thing that she reached these grand slam finals. I think in my head, I, I thought maybe she'd kind of come from nowhere, peaked for 18 months got thrashed in the grandstand finals and then was injured and was kind of never seen again. But actually her, her rise was really steady. And I think the beatings she took in those finals, you know, she didn't, none of the sets were closer than six, four, that kind of fueled that narrative as well. If some of those finals had been a bit closer, I think she'd have been looked back on more positively and more favorably. Um, isn't it interesting how no one ever says why is a Grand Slam champion not world number one?
3: Hmm.
2: Like no one's yeah. saying about Dominic Team. Well, why aren't you more consistent than world number one? Because you've got the ability to win slams, and yet the other way round is a thing. I don't quite understand that. Mm.
1: Consistency isn't sexy, man.
2: Well, that that does appear to be it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I think Safin is a great choice.
1: Mm. Yeah, and and. As somebody said to his son on social media, it is never talked about that they were the the first and only brother and sister, world number one pairing. I mean, that's just really, really cool and should be mentioned more. Maybe it's, maybe it's because they didn't sort of from the outside seem to have that closer relationship. They weren't in the stands that much for one another's matches. You know, whatever relationship they had, it wasn't very wasn't that public was it so so i guess they didn't play into it so much but but even so it's really really cool
3: by the way she was always regarded or reported as being marit safin's sister and i I know he came along first but it was never the opposite even when she got to number one and all that again there was there was never he you know he he was He won a couple of Grand Slams, but he arguably underachieved, given what he had uh, available to him.
1: Ditched the arguably. And he's the opposite. He's... He's found in time, isn't that was he? Always, he's, he's, that, it was his his achievements, of, I think, are all augmented in our mind. Actually, Marit,
3: he's, he's a bit of a lad, isn't he, Marit Safin? Look at him; he's a bit of a lad. You know, he goes and loses. He's lost to Thomas Johansson in the final of the Australian Open when he's the overwhelming favourite. But he's a bit of a lad, isn't he? Ah, oh, he's so funny, Marit. His sister's an embarrassment, isn't she? I mean, she lost in a grandson final. You know, that that's how it was. And it's mm. it's a it's it's not a great it's not a great look, is it, for a slot in the media? I think that
2: actually, this this discussion has made me rethink a video I've always regarded as one of my favourite videos, which is I think it's the 2009 Wimbledon after the final, which Serena's just won, and she's she's won the Australian Open at the start of the year, beating Safina. And she's won Wimbledon and yet she's not world number one. And she's asked, what do you think about that? You know, and Saffron is the world number one and Serena. And I, I don't blame Serena for this. I think this is just a little bit of shade between players. And it is quite funny where she says, well, she won Roman Madrid, you know, like that, you know, so kind of saying, well, you know, she's done great. She deserves world number one, but clearly tongue in cheek. But what now makes me uncomfortable is that the whole press room falls about laughing when Serena says that line and just feeds into what you were Mm. saying there, David, about how, you know, it it was seen as a bit of a joke. And for Safina, it obviously wasn't a joke because you've you've explained, Catherine, what what she was feeling and going through. And
1: yeah. Oh, what a bummer to end (laughs) on (laughs) Got um, any more
3: Carol Kuchera stories, David? <laughs> we, we, we've got a bit of a calendar, haven't we? On the ATP yes. side, we just need to, to mention.
1: News, yeah. actual tennis news. The ATP have released, unveiled um, their calendar for the start of the year. We're still, there are sort of rumours about what, what a WTA calendar might might look like, but nothing confirmed yet. And of course, it is notable that with all the talk of uniting and merging last year, these announcements could not be more separate. Um, But we do have an ATP calendar confirmed for the start of 2021. And it is thus from the 5th to the 13th of January, uh, there will be two ATP 250 events, one in Delray Beach, of course, that one usually hosted in in February, that'll be started January, and one in Antalya, uh, Turkey, which of course is ordinarily a grass court event held in June, so I'm not sure what surface that'll be on. I'd be very surprised if that were grass, but uh, we'll find out. Then, from the 10th to the 13th of January, it'll be Australian Open qualifying in Doha. Uh, then, from the 31st of January to the 6th of February, there will be Melbourne's 1 and 2.
2: Yes, they're happening in the same place at the same time.
3: Yeah. Which, which is like, I I see your cologne 1 and 2 and I raise you Melbourne 1 and 2 in the same place in the same week.
1: <laughs> yeah, we can only hope there will be double the quantity of dogs on mattresses.
3: And they got ATP Cup the same week.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then also, well... <sighs> Yes, I suppose it is the same week. The 1st to the 5th of. Yes, it is the same week. The 1st to the 5th of Feb, which is sort of slightly curtailed, whether that means fewer teams. I think
3: they said 12 teams, but 12 I, don't, I can't teams. remember. How, how many? There were but there were 16
1: time. before, weren't there? Right. Were I can't remember too like much that. about it. Uh, so an ATP Cup will happen between the 1st and the 5th of February. And then from the 8th to the 21st, it is now confirmed that we'll have the Australian Open. How do we feel about all
3: that? Relieved. Relieved that they have found a solution, a set of solutions. It's really tough and it's not ideal, I'm sure. They've got to build in this two-week quarantine for everybody where they have their five hours of practice a day and that's it and the rest of the time in the hotel rooms. I, I actually am quite impressed, really, that they have just managed to turn everything on its head, sort out a qualifying somewhere, use the Middle East, the tournaments that would have happened there, rearrange everything, just making the best of it. The only thing you can do in this situation is make the best of it. And I actually think that they've done a a really good job. I I wish that they had come out at the same time as the WTA and done this as a one fully fledged reveal of everything that was going to happen. I'm just sad about that. But, uh, but as a, a logistical, practical set of solutions, I think they've done pretty much as well as they could.
2: Yeah, I applaud their kind of creative thinking and I guess resourcefulness in terms of managing to figure out a way to make this work. A, a, a joint announcement with the WTA would have, would have been much better. Um, we did receive an email that I, I wanted to just, draw attention to because i thought it was very interesting from a from a listener and a tennis fan in melbourne who made the case that you know while she is delighted to have tennis to watch she's concerned that staging an international tennis event would jeopardize all the work they've done in melbourne this year i think well over a hundred days in a very very strict lockdown um she made a very good point i thought in terms of the way the bubble should be framed by the ATP and by Tennis Australia in that she th- she said at the US Open, the bubble was in large part about protecting the players from the virus. You know, they need to be in this bubble so that they don't get the virus and the tournament can go ahead. And she said, well, in Melbourne, the players arriving from all over the world, they are the risk. And the bubble should be about keeping them in, And people need to kind of make that mental adjustment, I think, and really realise the seriousness of keeping a proper bubble and not jeopardising the work that's happened in Melbourne. And from what we're reading and hearing, the bubble is going to be even stricter than it was at the US Open. I think they're going to have people enforcing and policing it even more than they had at the US Open. So I'm, I'm confident that all the discussions that have taken place between Tennis Australia and and the government will be ensuring that it is safe. But I think that I thought that was an interesting point from someone in Melbourne who is directly affected by this event happening there.
1: Very, very good point. And I think it it probably sums up a shift that a lot of people should or should have by now sort of experienced in how we treat COVID-19, which is, you know, to treat yourself as a as a vector, mm. um, rather than to to consider it purely in uh, in selfish terms. Yeah. Okay. Well, tennis tennis is going to happen. I mean, that helps when you've got a tennis podcast, <laughs> and the, people have given you a hundred thousand quid to make make it <laughs> yeah, for the but next we, year. We've always
3: got but, Carol Kachera and David Wheaton. I've even <laughs> yes, started. yet.
1: And the Lost Law years, Ken Flack. So. Regardless, even if it all goes to hell in a handcart, there will be tennis podcasts. Uh, And that is thanks to the, um, the mind that is David Law's brain and to you for funding us for next year. We are endlessly grateful and we are excited about making podcasts next year, whatever they might look like. Um, so this has been lost in time tennis there may be more there may be t-shirts to be discussed Uh, but we'll be back next week with uh, the next in our series of uh, podcasts that talk about the past and what have we got matt
2: next week we're doing sliding doors tennis so lots of hypothetical discussion your favorite Mm. Catherine.
1: Hypothetical discussions to the to the soundtrack of Aqua, which was not not a reference anyone's getting. No, that was they did the they did the theme song to Sliding Doors. Yeah.
3: Wasn't Gwyneth Paltrow in that? They
1: sort of followed up Barbie Girl with this like emo turn back time song. Gwyneth Paltrow was in Sliding Doors. Yes. She was the star of Sliding Doors, no less. It wasn't very good, was it? Um, do you know what at the time I thought it was a masterpiece and I watched it quite recently and it turns out it is quite
3: poo however our sliding doors won't be
1: (laughs) yes we aim to improve upon that Uh, so join us on Monday for sliding doors tennis thanks for listening thanks for thanks for supporting us Um, and we'll see you on Monday